0: So welcome to the show, my name is Mohamed Kalaji. I'm an AWS Community Builder and Software Developer at Zero and One. Today, I'm with Jason. Jason, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Today, my name is Jason Saint Cyr. I uh, live in Ottawa. I'm a Director of Developer Relations right now. And uh, I've spent almost my entire career in life here in Ottawa, Canada um, with my family. I've got uh, three girls, which is a handful, all very young and a beautiful wife that helps me get through this crazy life that we're going through these days.
0: So you currently work at Sitecore. Would you like to talk more about Sitecore?
1: Oh, yes. So um, uh, I mentioned I'm, I'm currently a director of developer relations. So I work, I've probably been at Sitecore now since 2017. Um, but I've been inside the Sitecore community for over a decade. Uh, so Sitecore does the. they build a lot of products. Uh, mostly around the idea of making customer experiences better. That's kind of like the, the marketing spin on it. Uh, but they do things like commerce products. We've got digital marketing, a lot of uh, things like uh, personalization, things like that. Uh, got SaaS, but also on-prem. So there's a lot of options. But SiteGore was most known for, what is it, over 20 years now, as, as a content management company. So in that space, people who are used to like headless CMSs or more traditional CMSs probably heard the name Sitecore before. Um, But for me, what I got done is I was actually at an agency implementing Sitecore content management solutions. That's how I got to know um, the community and this huge thing around it. And I kind of got excited by that. That's what brought me to working at Sitecore. So I wound up in a position as um, what was called a technical evangelist. But essentially, it was like, go get people excited, go talk to developers, you know, show them cool stuff that you're learning about the product. And through my career, I'm now leading that team of folks that we do a bunch of different things. Um, And so my role as a director is to try to how do we as a group accomplish something? What are our priorities? A lot of metrics, Uh, but I'm kind of addicted to the developer advocacy side of things as well and getting involved with the community. So I probably pitch in more than I probably should be at a leadership level. But developer relations itself as a group has a lot of different ways of doing things. Um, I think at Sitecore, when we talk about developer relations, it's very much focused on um, engaging with developers, getting them interested in the software. But also then once they're in- engaged, how do we build out a good experience for them? So that they, you know, want to keep working on it and then also creating these communities and events and things like that, that they want to then go and attend and meet other people in the community and build that all up. Uh, so that's kind of where we're looking at developer relations at Psychore is as building relationships with the audience and trying to advocate for that audience. So if developers are having a tough time with a particular API or There's some feature in it that's making it really hard for them. How do we smooth that out? How do we work with the product teams? Uh, How do we make sure that developers want to keep developing on Sitecore products, right? And how do we make it so that when they go and talk about what they're doing at their job to somebody on a podcast, that they're excited about what they're doing? That's kind of like ideally what I'd love to see.
0: But usually, let's say, for example, if I want to go to an event, so I would just come up and learn about certain things about Sitecore I might not think about? Or is it like I come up here and I ask some questions? So for example, I'm guessing like Sitecore is going to be a very big software, or a very big LMS, uh, not LMS, CMS. So there's going to be a lot of things that can do the job that I might not know about. So yeah. I go to this event, I might meet someone who might tell me this trick, and all of a sudden I might implement it at work.
1: Yeah. And it's, uh, it's exciting to see kind of how different people approach problems. So one of the, one of the greatest things that I've seen is, uh, and this is for any event, whether it's psych like, or related or not, is watching people who have built a thing, go up and show off what they did and they don't work for the company. They're just doing their job and they had fun and they show a bunch of other people who are working on similar tech, what the cool thing they did, and they inspire somebody else to go and do that. Um, our team tries to do that to try to say, "Hey, this is what we think would be a really cool thing to do." Um, but then we also want to get other people that are not us to go and show what they're doing. So if we do something like a core oriented event, like we have these um, community events called SUGCons in different places in the world, and that's all community-driven. It's a bunch of community speakers, cyclo speakers would come in too because people like to hear about product roadmaps and stuff like that. Uh, But a lot of the community speakers, they're showing off all these cool things that they've done, how to integrate with some other system or how they did some cool DevOps thing with Azure DevOps or something around our software. Uh, Those kind of developers talking to developers and showing what could be done. It's so much fun to just be in the room, just watch it and be like, someone did this. (laughs) right?" (laughs) It's it's the craziest thing
0: you could see someone has done it
1: yeah (laughs) yeah
0: stuff you want to even think about
1: exactly i i saw a team build a robot that would uh, be tied into our software somehow learn about you and what you did and was able to talk to you never a use case we would ever sell our software for but this was a couple guys just decided yeah this would be fun it's doable (laughs) they made it work right and everybody loved it it was just one of those inspiring cool things that happens.
0: Yeah, so you currently work as a director of developer relations. So what does the role consist of? And is it much more than just managing between the product and the developers and like much more in details?
1: I I think, um, so developer relations itself has a lot of different things. I think if I focus in just on my role as the director, there, I have a whole team, so I have, a, I have a people management aspect to my job, right? So I'm trying to keep a group of people working on developer experience and community and uh, our developer advocates and keep that group aligned on what's the biggest fires today, what are the our quarterly half OKRs, what are we measuring against, what are our targets, how are we doing? So there's a level of that that comes to my job of the, the team management. The other part of being their director is also how do you go and work with the other parts of the organization and make them understand what you're working on, how that's helping them find out ways you could help more, because sometimes there are people who they're facing problems and they don't even realize that there's a group that could help them or is already helping them and they could just leverage stuff and they don't have to start from scratch. So there's an aspect of that. There's an aspect also of um, trying to, Oh, who is it? Emily Freeman. I don't know if you know Emily Freeman. I think she's currently at uh, AWS. Uh, She's a great person in the DevRel community who used the word human router to describe our roles. There's There's this concept of like you just wind up connecting with so many people that you wind up having people come to you for things that are unrelated to what you do just because you've connected to so many people and you start routing people and going, you know what, I know this team that has exactly what you need and you connect these people together Uh, and you can do that inside the company, you can do that outside the company, Uh, but there's that aspect to the job, I think as well. That's beyond the, you know, doing relationships with developers, which is obviously the, the key piece everybody wants to do is like, how do we get developers to be more connected with us?
0: It's like the term, I know a guy who knows a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who works there, who can help you.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And you make these connections with other companies too. So um, one of the things that's happened in our space, I'm not sure if it's the same for, for your space as well, but we found that there's this, for a while, there's been a move away from trying to buy software that does everything and towards getting like, smaller bits that solves your particular problem and then putting all these bits together. Um, so oftentimes you need connections to what are those other things that you need? Because we're not going to, you can't come to us and have us solve everything. We're going to need to know like, oh, you you should really talk to Microsoft about this or wait, no, no, this is a Google thing would fit for your, your piece, right? And, and know all these different people you can connect with. So even beyond your own community and your own company, you then have this wider industry kind of connection that you made. So, so, like you say, you have to know a guy who knows a guy who knows. A guy.
0: <laughs> but there's a problem: is that you can't find a solution that fits all, and you cannot please everyone. That's the problem.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I mean that's an age-old product management problem. Is <laughs> what do you do next, right? And you can't make everybody happy all the time. So you have to look at okay how much impact are we going to make by making a change if we go in this direction are we is it a small group is it a small opportunity or is it a big opportunity and going towards a bigger opportunity you might not make a small group happy and that's that's that decision that can be hard because you can't get everybody happy and sometimes make, if you try to make everybody happy you wind up with this thing that doesn't have like a vision Because it's just like a hodgepodge of a bunch of stuff together. It's much
0: more complicated. I'll give you like an example of this. There's a a tale of this ship for a king. Uh, I forgot the name of the ship. But the king have this like uh, a medium-sized ship. And it Mm -hmm. has like 200 cannons. And then all of a sudden he wants 400. And then he wants a bigger ram on the front. And then he wants to have more aesthetics from the inside. And the bigger uh, everything. He, He... instead of the ship finishing in, let's say, two to three years, it took like 10 years. And the moment that ship went into the sea, it sank.
1: <laughs>
0: because it has all those shiny features, it has everything that everyone wanted, actually the king wanted, but it has everything that wowed everyone out, but yet it sank because it has so many things that, it, it's illogical to have it at a certain level. So most of the time, those kind of people just create, let's say, like a plugin, or they create, let's say, like a side stuff, and just connect it with the existing server, a service. And then all of a sudden, they just either sell it as a service if it's working out. So you start seeing products on top of products.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, And that happens at all layers, right? Like you, somebody's building a server somewhere they've got the hardware, they're building the steel, and someone's like, yeah, well, I can take the steel and I can make a rack. Then I'm going to put the our our servers in and they're building it on top of that. And then someone goes, well, I'm going to sell the service around managing those servers. And then someone's, I'm going to build the service around managing the people who manage the service. And it just layers up, right? till somebody pulls a plug and it all comes crashing down. Um, there's a there's an, I think it's an XKCD comic that has like the, the internet, the web internet. It's got the light tiny uh, little it, it's, block it's somebody's own personal like, pet project.
0: No, that's some some guy's library from Nebraska.
1: Yeah, it, like you take it out, the whole thing falls out. Of course I mean, we've seen examples of that with like, I think it was Left Pad. It got taken down, like the whole internet crashed. <laughs> Great. Oh, actually,
0: a, the, the whole internet crashed when Colors, uh, remember? Colors library. Oh,
1: yeah oh no i don't remember that one.
0: Oh yeah colors library uh even like the aws sdk library just went off <laughs> that bad
1: yeah the, and that's how we've built it up and and especially modern web development now where we're using npm packages and stuff like that everything's got a dependency on a dependency on a dependency the the graph of dependencies is so huge um it we're not one person building a whole huge system anymore it's Millions of people around the world who are all contributing into this mass, just trying to stack on top of each other.
0: Yeah. And then you realize you have like five gigs of NPM modules that basically <laughs> you're just using 20% of them.
1: Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, architecturally, I don't know how we solve that. Like, that's uh, not.
0: By the way, if you tried Deno, which is the Ryan Dahl's the, version. The, the- Deno it's like the acronym of actually of Node. He created the yeah. JavaScript runtime based on Rust because he has to create it based on Rust because you know the FAD build on Rust. No, but it's actually really good. It solves part of the problem that we currently have is that instead of installing a dependency that installs other dependencies, you put a URL, and that URL would have the necessary code that it needs. Yeah. So you would actually use parts of the code. You don't have to import everything inside of it.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's just more of a more targeted uh, piece. I so mean, we used to do the same thing, like I come from a .NET background of development, right? And you'd add like a library from the framework, and then it would say, well, you're gonna get these other libraries or else it won't work. And so, so you add all these libraries together and suddenly massively your bin folder is just huge when you really just needed this one method out of this one DLL. Um, but now you've taken up six gigs on your, your server with all your dependencies. Um, we seem to keep coming back to the same problem where it's easier to just copy-paste the line of code you need and put it into your code base, right?
0: I'm going to shift towards uh, another question, which is you also, at Sidecore, you worked as a head of developer advocacy and technical evangelist manager. What is the difference between those roles and the director of developer relations? And what are the similarities between them?
1: That's so kind of I would a say there are a lot of similarities. Um, there's an interesting switch there where where you see the name technical evangelist to developer advocacy. And that's because we actually, when I joined Sitecore, technical evangelism was the thing. We were part of marketing and we were very much focused on how do we create great content? How do we get developers excited? We did a lot of product marketing uh, for technical audience and that kind of stuff. So we had a very specific angle. And so I started as a technical evangelist and then I, I started leading that team. And so that's where I became a manager of technical evangelism. When we made a switch over to the product side of things, we switched from our focus of product marketing and evangelism. We kept some of that activity, but we switched over to the term developer advocacy because we wanted to shift our focus more towards how do we improve the product and and go in that direction as opposed from a pure content creation. We still do a lot of the content creation. I'd say it's probably a big part of our work. Um, But we've tried to shift mentally the focus. What are we thinking about? Um, So I became a head of developer advocacy at that point, as opposed to managing uh, technical evangelism. Then we get to developer relations. So me going to developer relations is a level up. So developer advocacy is one group within what we call developer relations. So we expanded to uh, have um, our community group as part of that. Uh, which manages things like events and our community platforms and developer uh, messaging and marketing and some of those things. And then also developer experience, which looks more like the strategy of like holistically across the company. What is the experience of being a developer coming to us? We run things like the developer portal that we built and some other uh, like open source activities, projects like that. So those three groups then sit under the umbrella Of developer relations so you can kind of think of me going kind of being at one level with the advocate group and then going up and having kind of a wider responsibility Um, i'd say the commonalities amongst them was that all three of those positions were people management positions so i am focused very much on how do i make my team do a lot of the work And while I like to be a player coach and jump in and and do a lot of stuff as well, like creating videos or uh, writing blogs, things like that, I love doing that, which is why I do the job. Um, My role is really not about that. My role is to make other people able to do those things. So how do I open up the opportunities, find the right uh, roles for people, uh, hire new people into the team sometimes when we get a chance? Uh, That's always uh, a fun time. And I think the hardest part of the job is how do I look at each individual and find the direction that that person needs to go in and work with them so that they know where they want to go? And I open up the opportunities for that particular path. So I can't look at all of the people and go, oh, you're all going to do this next thing and and move them together. I have to find different isolated ways. And that's not always possible, right? Because... Companies have priorities. These are the projects that are going to happen. So not everybody gets a chance at what their next thing is going to be. Um, but it's definitely interesting to try to find how can you make someone's career go forward and have that like responsibility to also be thinking about that. It's like how do I like even if I don't go forward, how do I make them go forward? So that you know, the day you've hired someone, your job is to make them leave the team. <laughs> like that's. That's a weird thing to do is like, I want you to go do something else from the day I've just hired you, uh, but also get something out of that because clearly I've got something I need from this role. That's why I'm hiring it. Uh, so it's a weird thing to, to both be coaching and mentoring, but also managing a team that has to achieve objectives because sometimes those, they don't always well align and you have to find the way to make those align.
0: I'll, I'll put in on this actually on just two points. Uh, the first point is discovering what the person uh, what each person is going in which direction. So if let's say, for example, if all of us are in the same company, I might like something that someone else might not not like doing. So it's just easier to let me do that kind of work and the other person do the other type of work so that both of us can move forward but i can focus on doing the things that i can do and i love doing and that person can do what he wants so let's say for example if we're going to build a product and you got let's say like five full stack developers so if i'm very comfortable with backend and someone else is very comfortable with front end i would just let the front end guy handle a lot of the tasks of the front end and i'll handle part of the backend versus if you gave each one of us uh, I'm going to say this, equal tasks between front-end and back-end, because I might take more time to do the front-end stuff, and the front-end guy might take more time to do the back-end, we might take extra time to get things done. Yeah.
1: That Now, there's a challenge that you just mentioned in that particular example, too, is that as a, as a team lead or a manager, efficiency is... It's key, right? You want to get the thing done as fast as possible as so you can get it out the door, get your return on investment, right? But what if the backend developer doesn't want to be a backend developer and wants to learn front end? Now, as, as their coach and mentor, you're like, how do I get them the opportunity to learn the skills so they can become a front end developer while not tanking my productivity of the team? Or, or, or possibly stepping on the toes of the person who's currently the front end developer, who really loves doing that, and now they're seeing their task go to someone else who's not as good as at them as they are. Um, so that there's that that's a challenge when when you have those things is that someone might be really good at something, but it might not be what they want to do next. And and you have to find ways that within your team you can get everything done, but give those opportunities and open those doors. And it might not be something as simple as back end to front end. It could be something like somebody wants to be a team lead, or somebody wants to uh, switch careers completely, do project management, not be a developer anymore. Um, so there's these different paths that you have to try to open up.
0: It's a complicated thing because you you don't know what the person is thinking on the inside.
1: And you and don't that, know how... That's why we have to talk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's quite difficult. But what I would just recommend is basically you would start with, let's say, for example, you start giving them small tasks and start to see if they're moving forward toward this. So let's take the example of the back-end guy. You want him to learn frontend, not because, because you're forcing him or anything. It's just you want him to become a better employee, a more valuable employee that might, you might benefit from him later on you can give him some tasks and you start seeing his productivity. If it starts affecting the efficiency of the product of moving forward, I may say, okay, let me just decrease those tasks a little bit. I think I might starting to push his limit a little bit. And then I'll start giving him tasks later on and see throughout, let's say a year or two years, since it's gonna take some time, you can't evaluate people on a very short time. In like a year or two year, and I see the amount of tasks that this person have done have he done a decent amount of tasks let's say front end tasks that i can evaluate and say okay he's moving forward or he's not doing that much
1: yeah that you're right you're talking about the performance evaluation side of 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 the job too there you're right like somebody might want to do something but turns out yeah, maybe this isn't for you <laughs> or you need to put in like way, way, way more time to learn it. And, and it's, and it might not be at this job that you can do that. Maybe you need to go and take a boot camp or something to, to, to catch up a little bit because on the job, it's just not going to work. Um, yeah, those can, you're right. That's, that's a really challenging part of those switching and learning skills pieces. Um, I know one of the challenge, too, is tech changes. Every developer, everywhere, not just developers, everybody, everything's changing. And so we're in this constant learning mode. Not everybody is great at learning new things all the time. And that can can be rough on everybody.
0: I've talked about this in previous podcasts, about should you be like someone who's going to learn stuff as it's coming up, or should I just stick with what I want? there are cases if you're really good at what you're doing if it does the job you're making you're making ends meet everything up and you're doing it just keep on doing it if, if you're good at doing it otherwise switching to a different field might be a better option so i'll, I'll give you a very prominent example about this so let's say you're a.net developer and you've been writing .NET for years okay you're really good at writing .NET. It's something that you've been doing for, like let's say, 10 years. You're much more better off to, let's say, keep on doing .NET because it's not going to go anywhere. It's not that. Then actually learning other stuff and waste your time on doing them while compromising your work.
1: I would add to that, though, it can be fun to learn new cool things. As long as what you're doing is it's not your... You're not trying to do that as your main job. So, for example, I'm not a daily developer anymore. My background has been years and years and years of .NET stuff. I'm learning Azure Functions now, how to do that on Node and JavaScript. I'm trying to learn TypeScript. I'm trying, like, I try to learn all these things because I want to know about them, or at least enough to like comprehend when somebody's telling me about the latest thing that I know what's going on. When everybody yeah, started but, getting into Docker and containers, right? Like, I was like, what is this thing?
0: Yeah, but the thing is, is that you still work as your regular job while doing those. Yeah. Rather I don't, I don't
1: try to claim I'm a professional, uh, you know, uh, React developer <laughs> all of a sudden.
0: No, but I'm just trying to say it's like you do your, your usual job, which is developer advocacy, mm-hmm. your director of developer advocacy, you do all of this, and then you learn this on the side. It doesn't compromises your current work but some people are willing to compromise the current work so they can shift the role.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, now you start to get what I mean. If you can find a place where that's allowed, that is a great, you, you should find those types of companies. If they have those spaces for where learning is part of the job and you get paid to learn, that's ideal. That's what you want to find because then you can they're, what they're saying is we want you to do that, and we'll give you money to do that. But that's very rare. You're right. Most people, what their their salary is for you to bring a a proficiency level. You are an expert at something, or you're really good at this, and you're going to do this job. This is what I'm going to pay you to do. Anything outside of this, I can't pay for. Um, it. I think it also depends on the the role. So someone like an engineer at a product development company has a very defined role. But if you look at somebody like uh, I worked in the consultancy business and you had to have a certain amount, like you had to be billable. That was, that was the key. It was less about what are you doing? And more like, are you doing something we can charge money for at a rate that pays your salary? Uh, so it comes back to the same thing. It's like If I go in and I'm doing front end development for some customer because they want a website built. They can't charge for me what they could charge for a professional React developer that that's their full-time job because I'm just some guy doing it on the end. So that's not valuable because they're paying me the salary for what I normally do. So they don't want me doing that. I have to bring value. But they also recognize that tech changes so much, you have to slot in time for those people to keep up on technology. Because even if you're just staying in your stack, new versions come out. There's new capabilities that like, like we're on. We went to .NET Core, the .NET five, .NET six, right? So even just .NET developers are seeing incremental changes. If you're in Next, they just did twelve point three, and that's got new stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've you've got all these pieces that you have to keep up on. I like the idea early on in a career trying out a whole bunch of different things before you become an expert. Get 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 across. And then find a thing that really jazzes you up and go deep on that. And maybe later in your career, you're going to go into another area and go deep on that and decide like a career change, but getting that good base, just a little bit everywhere, I think is really helpful for you to find the right angle for you to invest in.
0: Actually, I did that. And do you want to know what my first thing was? Yes. What was your first thing? Game development
1: oh i've always wanted went, to do that i don't i went that to I'm a sure.
0: game i went to a game jam just let me tell you this i went to a game jam on a weekend and i learned unity on a weekend it was it was stressful i was 17 years old <laughs> but it was the best experience because what i did is like okay i'll give this a shot if it worked out if i kind of liked it then i'll just keep moving on it I've I've went to like two to three game jams. Then I start to, someone told me like, hey, um, how about we do the, let's say the game, and how about you do the backend stuff? So you would do, for example, the scoreboard. I tried that and I was like, oh, okay, I kind of like this much more than before. So I just switched from game development. I switched to writing backend. Then I start doing frontend as well. I kind of liked it, I pushed it forward. I've learned mobile development with React Native, I never went, like, uh, I'm going to say this, native-native. I just did it for work. I've I, right. I, There was a job requirement that said we ne- we needed a React Native developer. I was like, okay, I can pitch in. I don't know React Native, but I know React. So <laughs> they, I pitched in. I, I, it worked out. I stayed there for almost a year. It worked out real good.
1: Yeah, so, So you went the approach of trying a bunch of different things, see what kind of, like, yeah, fit but then with I what you what, what you do.
0: Yeah, but then I took the safe spot and I just focused on doing this. I'm, I'm learning other stuff, but they're taking a, a lot of time to like let's say take time for them. Yeah. So uh, as as you start to age forward, so let's say I'm 24 right now. I'm still <laughs> relatively young, but
1: Sorry, you'd you're st- a kid. I've got shirts I'm a older kid. than you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm a kid, and I'm saying that as what I used to do in 23, I used to have a lot of time to learn stuff. Now I, I can't even barely, I can I can't barely like sit down for like three hours straight and just learn something.
1: Yeah, I, I've started in my career um, allocating time in a week. So I block off like part of a Friday or something. And that's like my learning time. And I pick something to go into. And it makes it so hard to go deep. You can't go, I like there's zero chance of me going and doing a weekend and learning something right it's uh um yeah we've got all other alternatives when you start being a parent there's you've got your kids become a very big focus and you've got your family and stuff like that and life just happens and you change your priorities um yeah i liked when i was in university um i went through a program that had kind of a co-op option where you could go and do jobs as like, as you went along, it meant your degree took longer, but you'd like disappear for four months or eight months and go work in the industry. Um, and those types of little, like locked in learning places where you can go in, the expectation on you is not high cause they're, you're, they're expecting you're coming in and going away. So you can go in and just learn a bunch of stuff in a real setting without the need to be feeling like, Oh, this is my career now because I'm still doing school, right? Like, this isn't what I'm doing. And I I, I think we need more of those types of opportunities for, for young people who are going through their initial part of their career, where they can be in a safe place to go and try real jobs and different things and find what's going to fit for them. So when they're coming out of the door, they've already got a leg up. They've already got work experience. It's easier to get a job because you can look and say, I've got a year or two of experience already done. I think we have to find ways that, that can happen more often.
0: I, I did that, but in another direct form, I skipped uni days. <laughs> I, I skipped. I skipped a decent amount of university days, I, uh, but I did maintain a good relationship with the doctors, so they put my attendance even if I wasn't there. But I went. Uh, I used to go to events. I used to go to competitions. I even one time, I skipped university and I went to a hackathon and I won. And then and then on a Monday I just came up to university it's like okay there's nothing happened I'm 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 just a just normal dude. <laughs> uh I entered like I entered university when I was 17 I went into the competitions I even got a a real job at 18. I was writing Angular 2. Yeah don't don't ask it was it was really bad. <laughs> but I got the job experience I've learned this throughout time so what you're trying to say it's yes those kind of things should exist, but it's kind of difficult to do it since it requires resources and money and time. And you need to expect that you're training people, a good percentage of, let's say like 10% of them will be the valuable people who's gonna bring you value, the 90% of them won't. So your chances of getting people, it's a little bit slim, but you get very, Highly skilled people that does your what you want easily, so you can That's train true. them to do other stuff. But the percentage of the kind of people that you get is very low. So if you hired, let's say, if you got a hundred people, ten percent of them will be the skilled people that they actually want to do this. The ninety percent of the people would say, "Okay, I'm still gonna see my options. I'm gonna move towards other things."
1: Yeah, and I and I think. Um... A lot of companies are more open to doing that when the market is really strong because they're able to say, well, we're gonna invest in taking a chance across a bunch of people because we know that they, we can we can afford to do this payout. And then when you see markets get a little more conservative, suddenly you see people going, Oh, now everybody's gotta have like five years experience before I hire, hire them. Right. And I was like, every job, it's like entry level, five years experience. <laughs> you must have 20 years experience up for this job if you want to be intermediate. Um, because now they're, now they're risk averse and they know it's like, if I hire this, this is, this is who I can hire. I, I don't get another shot at it. So this is what I'm going to do. Um, we see a lot of companies who during kind of over the pandemic era would have been they kind of did this trajectory up, massive growth, a bunch across a bunch of startups and smaller companies, did massive growth, hired a whole lot of people, and then as soon as it has a downturn, they realize that was great. Then uh, maybe we have to like go to a different level now for what what it is. And then you have other companies that are more stable that have they've grown at a more a slower rate, even when times were really good. And they don't have to do those cutbacks. They might they might tighten in different ways, um, but they didn't over-index on staffing. So different companies approach it in different ways. And I, I always find it interesting to, to see how leaders make those decisions because I've been in different companies. I'm a very risk-averse person. So to me, it's like I don't even understand someone who goes and like, I'm going to spend it all right now because it's good today. I'd be like, I don't know what it's going to be like two years from now. I'm going to keep this now. Right, and I'd be I'd be conservative for to save for the for the winter type of approach. Right. Um, so, but it's interesting to see how different people, and sometimes it works out for people, and sometimes it doesn't.
0: Most of the time, they just uh, cut off the people that they got them recently, just to save up costs. So they say, okay, yeah. this guy is like one to two years experience. I'm not gonna remove the guy who's like five years experience, has been working with us, who understands a lot in the in the business and the, the systems. For some guy, I'm teaching to become a skilled individuals, so they cut. So most of the companies cut offs, let's say like they cut 20% or they cut, let's say a small department. Usually they cut the new hires they recently got, let's say like from between like one to two years experience. But the people who are very skilled, it's it's more of a risk. So you can save up on removing the skilled people who cost more to keep those people, but it will draw back on you very negatively in the future, so I'll give like a small uh, idea behind it. So let's say if you have five skilled uh, full-stack developers who've been working from five to 10 years, they're very skilled. And then you got, let's say, a team of 10, uh, not freshly graduated, like one to two years experience kind of developers. Both of them cost the same, cost-wise, let's say, salaries-wise. So you either pick the five skilled developers to keep, and they keep the product floating, or you take the 10 developers, you you have 10 people so you can maximize the amount of tasks that you're gonna do, but the amount of risks that you're gonna get from those people is gonna increase because they might go into loopholes that they don't know where to get out of. Versus mm-hmm. the skilled people who already know the loopholes they'll get out of them or find a very easy solution based on their experience.
1: Yep, and another thing that experience gives you is, the, is like you say, it's the, You use that experience to handle the the things that you can't predict and when you're being in a conservative mode and you don't want to take risks you need people who know how to handle things that are unexpected because if you are having a bunch of people who don't know how to handle those it gets if something unexpected happens you don't have a team who knows how to handle it so in that mode you're taking a risk with those people I think the, you mentioned also like getting rid of an entire department. So there's, there's a money aspect. There's the risk aspect of like, who's got the experience and not, but then there's also a strategy aspect. So where is this company going? So you might be as a company doing multiple experiments. Google does this all the time where they all of a sudden it's like, we're not doing hangouts anymore, chats, the thing, or nope, we decided not this one, we're going to cut this. So you can have people who are extremely experienced and their entire department just Disappears because we need to cut and that thing's not working out. We tried it out, didn't work. What's interesting is sometimes they'll go in and they'll say, like, yeah, well, we really want like these two people. We'll just move them over here. That whole department's going to go, but we really like these two people. We think they could go and do something else. So it's interesting that when you have the room, there's this ability to risk and take a chance. And then all of a sudden, then you find out what is truly valuable to. The company when things start cinching up and, and i think that's a that's a mode that across the world right now we're seeing a lot of right where people are making those decisions of like what is important to me for real in this company what do we really want to do and who do we really need here on the team and and that is rough because there's good people who are really good at their jobs who suddenly don't have a job anymore and um that that's it's hard to see and then you a lot of people are in a position where they can't hire so even though you know that's a great person we could really use them over here but you don't have a job to give them and that's it, it's hard to, as a person who likes to help it's hard to see that when i see people that are good people that i know and they wind up losing their jobs life's tough yeah the the, the only thing we can do is you know try to connect them try to Try to do that human router thing. Do I, do I know someone who knows someone? Do they have a job, right? Like how do I, how do I make those connections? That, that, but, that's about all we can do.
0: But that's actually, I wanna just wanna ask about the old the human router kind of thing, but doesn't this gives you like a, a very uneven advantage versus others? So let's say for an example, if I know you, okay? And let's say I lost my job at company X, okay? And I couldn't find an, a job easily. And I came up to you and I told you like, hey Jason, uh, I got laid off. I'm looking for an opportunity. If you can help me in, and you say, okay, I know someone who can help you get a job. And I got a job. But what if someone else didn't know you? They would have a very tough time to find a
1: job. Oh, oh yes, yeah. So you're you're talking about basically the the advantages of a network, um, yeah, where you know, if you don't have a connection into the network, you can't go anywhere. Um, and there was this, it used to be the only way to do it was in the office. You had to, you had to be in the office and talk and schmooze and and meet the right people so that you could then make the connection to the job you want in another department in the same building. Like that was the old school way of doing it. Now we're doing it digitally. Now we're making connections on social media. We're making connections on, uh, conversations on podcasts, right? Uh, and you go out there and you, you find these people and you try to build some kind of connection to different people and the people who can't do that either through they don't have the privilege means to be able to or um they're in a uh a place geographically or class-wise that they are excluded by some other group and we see this all the time like the the celebrity structure right like they hang out with their own right they're they're not as much pulling from from random person who works down at the bank right so you have these circles of people and it's hard to break across circles um it'd be great if we had people who were just in every circle that you knew and you'd like advertise somewhere it's like if you want to go do this go talk to this person
0: but isn't this what polywork is trying to do uh, ironically it's like it's telling you like hey this person can do this you can collaborate with them
1: <laughs> i i think polywork i mean i got into polywork because it fit with the vibe of what I feel a lot of us do. Uh, you kind of
0: realize that creators. it's trying to fix this edge.
1: Yeah, because LinkedIn was supposed to be that. LinkedIn was the network builder. The professional thing where you would create connections and you would know someone. And when they posted a job, it would show up in your feed. and you'd, So you could create like first, second, third degree. LinkedIn did that really well of like, how do you connect in a graph with people? And then have job opportunities show up. What Polywork has changed is Polywork went and said, the people who are like this are not just this one-dimensional resume. It's, they're something slash something. They're maybe something slash something slash something, right? They might be three or four different things deep. Um, and they aren't represented well by those job markets where it's like, you have to be in this box. So you're going to look at these things. Polywork has that option where it's like you can say, "Well, these are all the things I'm good at," and someone's like, "Here's all the things that I want to get done," and then you can kind of create it together. I'm interested to see where it goes. Polywork's very, very early in its stage. Uh, I I they just did their uh, Series B, so
0: they got out of public. uh, They got out of um, invite only. They're now public.
1: Yeah, which is which is a good thing. I mean, the invite only is great for building hype, but at some point you have to get to that. I am now going to be an open social media platform that people can get in and anyone can connect with somebody else, whether or not they know. Like me being able to meet you to, through through Polywork, that was great.
0: I'm gonna shift to another question, which is Sure. Uh, before you start working at Sitecore, you received the Sitecore MVP award for four consecutive years in a row. Yeah. Uh, did those awards push you towards getting a job at Sitecore? So we see, let's say people who are like Amazon heroes or Microsoft MVPs or Google developer experts, they get hired as let's say developer relations or uh, a similar roles at the respective company, or I'm just saying something that either I'm biased about or something about it.
1: I would say, so what? here's here's what happened to me in the actual like flow of things. I got to a point in my job that I was at where, I wanted to make a change and do something else. And I had two offers on my table. I had one offer to be a director of engineering at a, a local company. I'd get to be in be in Ottawa. I was gonna be, it would be my chance to go up and do line management and all kinds of stuff. It was a good career opportunity. And then I had this job to be a technical evangelist, not leading anybody over at Sitecore. And these two opportunities were in front of me. Um, and I had just spent five or six years, getting to know that software, and getting to know the community. And I think those MVP awards were a reflection of the stuff I was giving back to the community. I was doing blogs, I was doing public speaking and stuff like that, because I liked doing that stuff. And then here I have a job to like really advance my career as a leader, or do the stuff I was doing on the weekends and get paid for it. So I was suddenly faced with, well I, I'm clearly doing this job already whether or not I work there and now they're telling me I can get paid for it like I th- that's probably what I'm gonna do so I think when when people are are getting into that MVP ambassadors whatever the programs are those awards are usually signs of someone who loves doing a thing and so it makes a natural sense that someone who loves doing something is going to then try to get a job doing that all the time. Uh, I also, as a hiring manager, when I look at a field of candidates, I, I have, I think, one person on my team who had no experience with Sitecore before, never was in the community. I've only ever hired one of them. Every other person on that team has had some kind of experience with, with the product already. Because, and that, that is what drove them to wanting this type of job is that they got excited. They wanted to be part of that. Um, so it definitely helps. You also create, back to our network discussion, you create these networks of connectivity where you walk into an interview and the person hiring you already knows you. They already know what you can do. They've seen your stuff. So you have this leg up. It's like you've been auditioning for them for like four or five years, right? And they've, they've seen it. You're a known factor. There's no risk. For them, as a hiring manager, you're just basically
0: you're just basically doing the interview just for the papers. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they already know you. They already know you. Like we already seen your stuff. We're just doing the thing that we're forced to do.
1: Although, I mean, sometimes what happens is you go up against other people who have also been doing that. So now it comes not that that's harder as a hiring manager when you have multiple excellent candidates that are all qualified. How do you pick the right one? That, that is a tough question I got, and it's never the same because it's always down to the people and what you think is going to be the fit, but also what is different. So as a question I ask in all my hiring interviews is if you were to join our team, what do you think is the superpower you bring that is going to be the extra thing that we need at Sitecore or whatever company I happen to be hiring for. And I do that because I want to find out what do they think is special about them? What is the unique piece? Now, maybe they bring a different geographic experience or they have a different culture or they have a different background in terms of what they work on. Because maybe we don't have any React developers and they're really strong in React. Or maybe it's they love doing videos and we have no video people. Uh, It it could be all kinds of things. It could be somebody who's really great at podcasts and is like, well, we don't have any podcasters. That'd be cool. Um, Somebody always has something that's unique to them. Uh, And... That's a, I think that's a part of building a team that's hard to do because you often wind up with a lot of people who look similar and you have to find those things like, what is the extra bit that I'm going to do to make this team better and do something else, do something cool, not just more of whatever we did.
0: So it's back to the part of some people like to do something and other people like to do other things. So you yeah. start focusing on each one of them to do what they want.
1: Exactly <laughs> And and people get happy at their jobs if they're able to do something that they love. Right? And that relieves to retention, which reduces churn, which means that you have a more stable team, which allows them to get past the, uh, what is it called? Forming, storming, norming, conforming. I don't know if you're familiar with those four parts of mm, the team group.
0: No, first time learning
1: them. Okay, so the idea of forming, norming, Forming, storming, norming, conforming is forming is the team gets together for the first time. Things seem great. Everybody's all excited. Storming happens when you realize nobody knows how to work together. This is a new configuration. Our output and efficiency is not so good. Norming, everybody starts figuring out what people are good at. How do you work together? How do we get efficient at doing this thing we're all doing together? And then performing is when you hit that stride. So every team is going to go through that as they gather together. And every time you change the configuration, you might have a team that's been together seven years, you add somebody else new, you're back to forming. But the more you have a base, the easier it is to go through. But if you keep a team constantly in that loop of churning, where people are not retained, where you're not building a team good together, and this goes for anything, whether you're building software, whether you're on a hockey team, whether whatever it is, um, the more you churn people in and out, the more you're stuck in forming and storming and you never get to perform.
0: And here's the thing, because some of them, remember when you set the part where you hire someone, you expect them to get outside. They reach the position that they've learned most of the things at this current formation. So they say, okay, I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to start my own thing, or I'm going to see something new.
1: Yeah. Which and also that affects- basically that takes you back. Now you got a new, new level of, of performance that you have to adjust to and you have to go through that cycle again. Um, and so you don't want to, for example, if you're leading a team, you don't want to have your entire team suddenly go back to forming, right? And go back to the beginning. You, you need to have it so that you can cycle it in and, and have a way to continually deliver what you need to do, but allow the opportunity pr- to people to go back and start a different path if they need to. Um, and you're always going to hire new people like that's, nobody stays anywhere forever. Uh, that's, it's going to change, but, um, the, the more you can make people want to do the job, whether that be in a group that matches what they want to be around, the more you can create opportunities for them to go in the direction they want to go, the, the longer you can keep yourself at that more performance stage.
0: Some people do stick in their jobs forever, not because they might like it, but out of fear.
1: Yeah, it's it's becoming very rare to you don't see the the people who started a job straight out of school and then retire out of the same company any much anymore, right? It's there's a lot more mobility and that's helped a lot because especially early in a career, if you want to advance, you, uh, the best way to increase your salary very quickly and increase your job title is to jump laterally to a bigger company then jump up to a smaller company then jump laterally to a bigger company and just keep doing that zigzag. And you can go from junior to senior very quickly.
0: Yeah. But the problem is if you're doing it very, like if you do it a lot, it's a red, very red flag that something's wrong with you at a certain level.
1: I, I, <clears throat> I think I used to think that earlier in my career, I think I've come around to the fact that it is now more accepted that people are, in a more of a gig economy now, and that people are doing the job that they wanna do that gets them where they need to be, and that the allegiance to the hiring manager is not there. That the, the power has shifted a little bit more to the worker, not all the way, but a little bit more such that people go like, I'm here, my job is, this is not my job. I'm, go- I'm already thinking about the next job. And that they're doing this. And now that I understand that that's a thing people are doing, um I don't see it as a red flag when I see somebody has that move. I see but I plan for it. I go this is a person that I should expect is only going to come in to get what they need and then they're going to go somewhere else. And if you plan for it, you know you're expecting it and you adjust appropriately, right? But sometimes especially those... if they're going to if they're going to bring you something you need. Like you got to compare it against what else you have, right?
0: Yeah, but about uh, something unique. Most of the time people who work from big corps they leave the big corp. Either they become a tech lead or a CTO. I've, I've, seen, this, I've seen this a lot. I haven't discussed about this in a previous podcast where you find someone who works at Google like two to three years and all, all of a sudden he leaves and then he's a CTO or a company.
1: Hmm. Hey, that's that Fang money. Uh, big experience, big scale. You come down. That, that company is going to learn from all that experience. Yeah, it didn't come for cheap. Doesn't come cheap. No,
0: I'm going to shift to another question, which is uh, you worked as a senior solution architect at No Linear Creations.
1: Oh, yeah. Yep. That's how I got into the whole Psycho world.
0: Yeah. I've uh, talked about solution architect in a previous episode, but uh, it's either like uh, pre sales help or post sales help in, in, the, in the solution architect's world, where you either assist the client before starting the project to tell them what fits, or after the project is developed or it's coded or after the product's been launched, you start to give them advice on how to optimize, let's say on costs or making things work efficiently. Is this the same as let's say at nonlinear or it's something else?
1: I think we had some similarities there. Um, non-linear was a, a small um, agency. Um, I worked in the auto office, um, but there weren't, there weren't a lot of us who had the solution architect title. So we wound up doing a lot of the different roles. I would say, a portion of my time was involved with potential customers. So in my our specific position, when I was doing this, we were trying to get jobs to implement Sitecore software for a company. So some company had gotten to a point where they're like, I think we're gonna buy this Sitecore software. We need someone to build something up on this. Who's the dev team we should bring in? Who's the strategy team? Who's the design team? And our agency had all those different teams that could come in, so we would go in. And someone like a solution architect would be around to be able to answer the the technical questions. Like if someone's asking, okay, so we want to do X, Y, and Z. Is that something that's feasible? What does that look like? And we could come up with like, well, here's a potential architecture you could go with. This is what a project would look like. Here's the type of skill sets you would need. And we could kind of come up with that. So they would get an idea of what a project might look like. Uh, But I would say a majority of my time was actually running dev teams. Uh I well sometimes I was the dev team. <laughs> so it <laughs> depends on the size of the project, right? So something comes in it's like an upgrade project. I would just handle it. I would handle the customer, I would do the project management, I would do the build, I like I do the deployments. Uh that would be the type of thing. But it was a it was like a senior team lead role. Uh sometimes my teams were like seven or eight people. I had people offshore that would be working, and my job was to make sure. We, I had the, the vision of what we needed to do, work with the customer. Um, we also uh, sometimes had project managers. Sometimes we had product owners and they would help with that kind of leadership with the customer. And then I could focus more on the tech and be in the, how do we deliver mode? So that was for really big projects. I could be like a delivery lead. But one of the things that was probably uh, the hardest to do was to wear all those hats. When you had a team of like four, And then like, you're the project manager, you're the product owner, so you're defining all the requirements, you're meeting with a customer, you're designing, you're the tester. (laughs) When when the teams start getting smaller, you're having a lot of hats. So one of the things we had to do on any given project at the very beginning was to be like, we know these are all the hats that people have to wear in a project. Who is it that's on our team? Who's going to wear these hats? So that everybody would know at the beginning this is what's going to go. So the fact my job said solution architect was that was, that was what I was being paid and, and sold as. But the, what I did didn't necessarily match that because every project's different. Every customer comes in, they've got a different budget. They've got different requirements. Uh, that means different sizes of teams, different things that need to be done. Maybe one day I'm building up team city integrations and deploying stuff. And the next day I'm writing .NET code. The next day I'm writing automated tests for like unit tests or something, right? It's like, You don't know which project you're going to have, Um, but I really loved it. I loved the dynamic nature of it. That's like, I didn't know what I was going to do, (laughs) right? Like there would be a three month period where I knew what I was going to do. I'm on some project, but the next project could be different. And so there was a lot of learning that could happen. And I was working with all these people doing different stuff. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about scrum before I was a solution architect. That wasn't something I really got into. And then all of a sudden, Hey, I know scrum. (laughs)
0: it's like uh, it's like this job has like this very weird tasks like you don't know what's gonna happen it's like wheel of fortune today (laughs) i'm gonna get project management
1: yeah yeah you don't know what it's gonna expect yeah it's uh you do a lot of learning on the job so we talked earlier about you have all these things you could learn and you're not necessarily good at but you find out what things you're good at learning i think So I know I should never do UX. I am bad at that. I tried to learn how to be a better user experience designer, and I've learned a little. But I can tell this is not something that I can adapt to as well as when someone started teaching me project management. I was like, wow, this fits really well with the stuff I've already done. And so there's like people pivot where they go, I'm going this way in my career. Nope, I'm going this way. And I've always been more of a like, how do I do a slow pivot? Like, how do I keep within a very small degree of it? And then that eventually gets you somewhere else that could be totally different.
0: That's going to take you some time. Uh, so it you does. can ensure, ensure that you would have a safe transition rather than yeah. having a spike transition and risk
1: something. Yeah, as I mentioned, I'm risk averse. So <laughs> that's the path I went. I think some people have more of a the the nature to like just jump in and they'll be like i'm i'm a developer nope today i am now going to be an entrepreneur and i'm going to become a ceo and they just pivot and that's what they're doing now and some people can do that that's not a thing i've been able to get hey to
0: if it together. if it works it works so yeah was, we're not going to blame I'm, them
1: yeah like all the power to you <laughs> but but maybe the, the key point is there is that you need to know what your path is you can't just go and say that person did well i'll do what they did you, you kind of have to discover your own path.
0: Yeah, basically copying someone's homework is not going to work out.
1: No. Well, especially if they don't write down all the steps.
0: Even if they gave you the steps, that doesn't mean you, things are going to work out the same way that worked out for them.
1: There's also That's some right.
0: elements. There's also some elements from within, let's say, the job. So maybe you and I are applying for the same job uh, my CV, let's say, for example, is way much different than your CV. You have a higher chance of getting the job than I do, even though both of us know how to do this. Mm-hmm. So it's not always the case. That I'm giving an example, but there's other cases. But it doesn't mean if you and I are going to do the same thing, we're going to get the same result. If we're going to get oh, the exactly. same result, if we're going to get the same result, then what's the point of doing it in the first place? You have a formula that's working, then that anyone can do it.
1: Yeah. And, and some people have natural talents as well. And this is what like in sports, you call it scouting. Right. And you have to get better at that. Like Steph Curry could stand beside me and show me how he shoots threes all day long, zero chance. I could ever break it into a BA. doesn't matter how tall I am. Right. like, (laughs) Like there's some people who just, they, they've done a lot of work and they can do it and there's no way you will emulate them. It doesn't matter how long you pay you, you're missing that bit. Um, And I see this in in my own job where it's like, there are certain things I wish I could do. I just, I don't have that last bit that that the special thing that makes that person able to get it to the next level.
0: That 1%. Uh, Yeah,
1: (laughs) whatever, whatever that part is that's in their DNA or their soul or whatever it is. uh, There's something that enables them to have that ability to go and do it better than someone else who has the same experience.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna shift to another question which is you also worked sure. at decision academic as a software development manager so what is the role of being a software manager and is it similar to let's say a tech lead on let's say a set of project or is it something let's say like, similar to a project manager or a scrum master in a, in a role because the whole idea of a software development manager is very vague they might tell you you're a, you're a manager but you might be a tech lead or you might be let's say a project manager but you know some code so you can assist them
1: yeah in that particular instance the role there was to distinguish between someone who was a developer versus the people who manages the developers and that when i when that was being used it's about people management so this is about hiring and firing performance reviews um, trying to define career paths things like that so a people manager has a very distinct role from a team lead. But often you're doing both jobs. So as a software development manager at, at Decision Academic, it was a small company. It was a small R&D group that I had um but I that meant that I was people managing, team leading, project managing, uh doing doing release management. Uh so you're doing a lot of stuff because you have to wear a lot of hats in a small company. Um, But the piece that distinguishes it from someone being one of those other things is where you are responsible for someone else's career. And uh, people management is not for everybody. And at that time, I don't think I was ready for what people management meant to me in my career. So I had spent quite a bit of time being a developer. I was pretty good at it. I, I thought I was pretty good. I don't think I was actually necessarily all that great, but I thought I was doing really well. And trying to be a people manager and throw away all the stuff that I really knew and like totally switch, that was really hard at that time. I was early 30s, I think. Might have been 30, 31, I can't remember. Um, and I was really intent on staying a developer, but also doing this other thing. And that did not work well for me. Like, I, I, uh, mental health wise, it was way, 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 way past what I could handle at that time. Um, and, and I had to learn a lot the hard way. Uh, but I think as a people manager, we have to focus more on those people and less on the individual tasks. And that's something I've always struggled with. I I want to get my hands dirty. I love doing that. And that's hard when you become a software development manager, you're usually got the background of being the developer, and separating yourself from that it's tough, especially in a small team where you could help. Like they're they're struggling. They, they, there's so much to do and so few people. Like you can get in there. Um, so no. and a team lead, I would say, has a lot of in the in the weeds, right? Like they're they're really in there, and they don't have to worry necessarily about people reporting to them.
0: So you prefer to be a more like a tech lead than being a manager at a certain level because I think you like back,
1: to do back then. Yeah, I yeah, think because I you like
0: to do because you love to put your hands dirty into things.
1: Yeah, I think at that time, it probably would have been a better idea for me to be a tech lead and leave the people management to somebody else at that time. I think now I've figured out on how to handle my mental health to be able to do the people management and then find time for those things that give me joy. Um, but but at that time in your career, so somebody who was going through it, I would say try the tech lead first when you're making that transition before going straight to management and people management, unless you have some kind of experience with it already where you know how to handle it, or you're that type of person who can just turn off. Maybe you don't actually like development that much. Right? That might be an easy way to go and become a people manager Is is, is that you won't mind, you won't miss that.
0: But you stayed at Decision Academic for, like, nine years. That That's a lot of years spent in a company. Yeah.
1: I I, I honestly, if I had not done that to myself, like, that company was great. I had so many good friends there. Um, but what that company did the best for me is, you know how earlier I was talking about the T, go across and then go deep in something? I did everything. I was hired there out of school as a Java applet developer. Whoa. I hadn't ever done that before. I'm going in, I'm rewriting their applets from 1.0 to 1.1. Like this is the time frame we're at because that's the only way to do dynamic stuff on the web was build it in Java. I didn't I'd done some Java in school. I'm like, whatever, I can do this, rebuild their entire front end software in like six months on a contract. And they're like, okay, you can stay. And then I'm becoming a classic ASP developer. Okay, sure, whatever. This is a different thing I've never done before. I'll do this. Then I'm becoming a .NET developer and I do that for a bunch of years. And then I'm switching to commerce. And, I'm, and there were so many opportunities. At one point, I was like, I had the key to the server room. I was going to the data center in the middle of the night, changing servers. I was on ops calls for like 3 a.m. pager calls and stuff. Like I got my hands in so many different aspects. So while I was in one company for nine years, I don't think I had one job for more than like six to eight months. Or sometimes I had like a role, what I was being paid for, but I was doing like two or three different things. So I got to build that that base. I got to go across all the stuff and go like, I can do this, but I don't like it. <laughs> this stuff jazzes me up more. I want to do more of this. Um, and that's, I think that's why I was able to stay was that there was opportunity. And anywhere I've worked, I've looked for a place where it's like, Are you hiring me to do this thing for the rest of my life? Or do I have a chance to do something else? Because in two years, I'm going to want to do something else.
0: So basically, you were the Swiss knife of the company.
1: (laughs) In small companies, almost everybody winds up trying to do that. The people who do well, I should say, are people who can pitch in on whatever. And they might not be the best at it but everybody can kind of pitch in because you don't have enough people to be have specialists for everything, right? Like we had one guy who was the IT guy for the entire company. So if you have to carry a heavy server, <laughs> that one guy needs some help, right? Uh, and so somebody's got to learn and somebody's got to help do these things. And so you pitch in when, I think if you're young and you have the the opportunity at a company like that, try these different things. Put your hand up when when someone says, hey, do you want to help out? Um, uh, it, it gets appreciated and you learn something. You might hate it, but at least you tried, right? Uh,
0: other than just uh, expanding your knowledge on different aspects and trying to find what you want, uh, what kind of like piece of advice would you like to give for software developers when starting out, other than just narrative oh, well, finding that,
1: That's my number one, for sure. I Every time I talk to to interns or anything like that is like do the base so you can find your T. like that's that's the number one but if there was going to be something else i would probably say that make connections so my job right now is all about making connections but early on in your career we talked about this earlier um your ability to find the next thing is all about the people that are around you that you connect with and they don't have to be in your company. But you need like if you want to go apply for another job, they're going to want to check with somebody that you are who you say you are. Um, If you want somebody to like pull you along to where they are, like I've done that with friends where I say like, hey, you should come join me at this company. It's a really cool place. And I know you're awesome and you'd fit this role, right? You want people to do that for you. Um, and you want to be able to do that for other people. So, uh, oh, who's it? I think it's Scott Hanselman who said, you got to collect good people like trading cards, right? Like just build the hugest pack you can, you know, make, and make sure it's diverse. Make sure you've got like somebody who can do front end, somebody who's a project manager, someone who's good at business, somebody who's, you know, maybe you hate, but like they, they are really good at something that you're bad at right? Have all those those trading cards close to you. Burning bridges is something people always tell you. Don't burn your bridge when you go. It's okay to burn a bridge, as long as what you're doing is you're keeping those cards. you got to find what those are that are valuable to you, that you want to collect, the good people. And that goes for anything. That's not just your career. That's life. Uh, build build that your seems, pack.
0: Build your pack uh, isn't like, for example, if you want to build your pack... Do, do I have to get like certain things to validate my pack? So let's say for an example, some people go towards certificates as an example, since it gives oh, yeah. you the sense of validation. Yeah, Let's say for example, I have like five AWS certificates. I'm doing my six at, at September, at the end of September. So I'll have like six AWS certificates. But someone's gonna come up and see, let's say my CV will come up and say like, oh, this guy's a skilled person. He has five AWS certificates, that means he has a set of knowledge of AWS, then I would consider hiring him. But that's not the case because some people might be very good at AWS, but they don't have the certificates.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit biased here because I went the no certificate route for a very long time. Um, So my particular way of going about things was that I didn't believe that certificates were going to say that I was good at something, I had to show it. That's always what I believed is I have to show someone that I'm good at something, and then I'll get somewhere. Maybe that's why I stay at companies for so long is that I'm investing in them to say, hey, I can do this. And it's like, hey, you let me do that. So I'm just going to keep showing you. Um, So maybe that's why I do that. But I did switch at some point into doing certificates. um, When I found out that it actually helped with an aspect for the company that they needed. So it was less about who I was as a knowledge perspective, but it was more about, okay, like some company has to show that they have six certified people to any customer that they go talk to. And if I'm coming in and I don't have a certificate, I'm down at the bottom of the pack because they need to hire somebody who has a certificate because they need to go put, improve that number. And some of those companies, they'll be like, you're really good. I'm going to hire you, but you have to go get a certificate right away because I need to put that on my, my wall. Like we had a certificate person walk out and I need a new certificate person. So that's where I see certificates as a huge value because they're seen as valuable in the marketing of a company to other potential clients. And so then you are part of that commodity. You're part of the sales pitch. Um, it, so it helps with that differentiation. And I think a lot of people want to have certain certificates, especially on their profiles. So that when people are searching, like recruiters and stuff, you'll get pulled in, you'll get more opportunities. So it depends on your approach. Are you a waiting for someone to call you or are you knocking down the doors or are you working a network? If you've got your cards and you're getting your jobs all by who's in your deck, your certificates don't matter as much, right? You're working, your network. But as soon as you're trying to go outside of that, nobody knows you. What you did before doesn't matter. How good you are? Nobody knows. So how are you going to show that? Certificates are one form, way.
0: You need a form of validation.
1: Some form of validation. I like GitHub repos. I've seen on developers who don't have certificates. You can go look and they, they're showing you. They're, they're writing blogs. They're building stuff. They're, that's the approach of like, here is my resume, but it's like my portfolio. Like, look at my portfolio. You don't need a certificate to know I'm awesome. Uh, But there are certain things you can't portfolio. AWS is a good example. Like it's hard to really portfolio your skill at AWS well, because there's so many different certificates, so many different pieces. Like if you're good at EKS, that doesn't mean that I can take you over and do any other piece of the Amazon giant system of things, right? Like you might not even know how to do all of the parts of EKS, (laughs) right? So it's... That's where um, I guess it's similar to us requiring universities degrees on hiring things, which I push back against now, but for a very, very long time, and I think it's still pretty rampant in the industry. They'll say things like, you need a bachelor of computer science. Why? Why do we need to have a bachelor of computer science to write some software for a website? Like nothing that I took in my bachelor's would have made me good to be a React developer today. Right, oh,
0: trust me, I feel that I, I got the certificate just for my parents. Don't don't even think I got it for myself. I but just it's want on them job to hang. Yeah, I just wanted to. I just I framed it. I gave it to my mom. and told <laughs> her, "Hey, I got you the certificate. You can go and hang it on the wall. I don't need this piece of paper. I'm already good." Yeah.
1: No, I I'm not saying that university is bad. I no. I loved my university degree in that it gave me opportunities to do work before I graduated. And it taught me how to learn. I think that was the best thing out of it. What I learned there, whether or not it was applicable, was, was largely irrelevant. I was certainly in things like C and small talk and all kinds of stuff that even at the time, I was not going to use. But it, what it taught me was to do a whole bunch of different stuff and learn it. Like having to learn assembly and then learn Fortran and then learn webhooks and then learn like all that stuff. Every single thing that I've encountered I'm able to learn what I did from that university. So that was the real thing that that showed for me. But that doesn't show up on a resume. That doesn't show that I can do this job. So I think certificates fall into a similar thing. Someone who accomplishes a certificate has been able to show that they were able to learn this thing. And the value is not what they knew from the certificate. The value is that they know how to learn it. So you could throw something at them. This is a learner. They know, you can, whatever you throw at them, they've got a base of knowledge and they know how to learn new stuff. And that, that's to me what a certificate value shows.
0: Uh, there's, uh, there's this three elements, actually. It's reading, writing, and speaking. If you can accomplish those, then you could do it. The, the whole idea of university, as you said, is to learn, is to teach you how to learn. It's actually by start to read. And when you start to read, you can write. And after writing, you could speak. Once you accomplish those three steps, you're capable of proving that you've learned a subject matter so you can switch to other subjects as well and you can prove it. Mm -hmm. So let's say for example, I went to university, I learned how to code I took algorithm class. I finished from university, I went and I learned, let's say, Python. If I can read Python code and I can write Python code, if I'm capable of explaining all of the code elements that I've written and I've showed my experience from reading and writing, then it shows the experience that I currently have. Yep. The whole element of university. Actually, I did enjoy my time in university just for like, you meet people who are similar to you, you have some connections, you you learn a couple of things that you don't learn in real life, that you only see them in university. That's partially true. But the academic, I'm gonna say this, the academic route only teaches you what the academics want you to learn, not what the market is. Because it was created at a time where this fits the market at that time, but they didn't update it yet. They tried to do that in my university, actually, to teach you relatively new stuff. For example, they taught uh, Angular 6 and 7 at my university and Node.js as backend, which is very unusually, you don't find this at universities. But then they switch to the whole part. It's like, okay, we just didn't see that much of an impact. We'll just go back to the ASP.NET curriculum. And they switch back.
1: It it also comes down to your profs too, right? Like um, some universities bring in profs who have industry experience, who are associate professors or something like that, where it's like their real job is doing software development out in the industry, but they're going to come into the university and teach what they know. Um, And those are really different classes from someone who has been in academia and might be really, really advanced in the uh, theoretical computer science stuff. Like when you look at algorithm analysis and all those like order and log in algorithms and stuff like and learning all that stuff. I was not good at that. So I was always amazed by the people who like this is their life's work. They've been able to go and push this to the limits. They're trying to teach me like the beginning steps and I'm stumbling. And. There so there is this whole aspect of computer science that is out in a different realm for what we see in the type of work we're doing today. Um, and I I feel like when I look at some of the advancements in AI and stuff, and I know like a little bit about what would have had to go into someone learning how to even push stuff to that point, I go, okay, well, I could so I see the value of academia because somebody is going and going, how can I do something totally off the wall? That doesn't make any sense with what's in the industry today and i think everybody gets to choose like where what side are they interested in and right uh i was always the how do i build something now and so my, i always aimed for that type of stuff
0: i'm gonna i always end the podcast with a mental health question it's something that i love to do that's okay. uh, always like a mental health question i've done it on all of my episodes so i like to have this as like the ending Have you ever faced burnout or imposter syndrome and if you did then what did you do to resolve towards these issues the reason why i asked about this is because our industry is riddled with burnout and imposter syndrome almost like eight out of ten people would would face one of those so i like every single person's perspective about this you can talk about your perspective freely
1: Uh, yeah i so first off i think i mentioned earlier about how things didn't go well when i switched into people management because i did not balance well so yes i i've done that that side uh, but i'll tackle the the imposter syndrome first i'm probably having an imposter syndrome like right now but i've definitely i've always felt and and the tricky part about imposter syndrome is you feel like you're doing something that maybe someone's gonna figure out you don't know how to do um and then you, you, you can't tell is it i feel that way because i don't know what i'm doing because other people don't know what i'm doing or because everybody doesn't know what they're doing and because of that you're always in this mountain like you can't learn it's not like you go talk to someone and be like do you think i know what i'm doing and then they're like yeah yeah it looks like you know what you're doing I'm like yeah but do i really know what i'm doing <laughs> you, you nope. can't get to the answer on it um right? So it's, I I think the imposter syndrome is a tricky one to get around. I think it's a human condition problem. Like we are naturally questioning of our ability. Some people are really good at just thinking they're awesome and all the time, whether they are or not. Like, And I just, I don't have that, (laughs) but I, I, I I feel like maybe I've gotten to the point where now I know I'm good at certain things, I have enough experience to have shown that it's like other people have told me I'm good at these things. What I'm doing today may not be that, but at least I have a base of like certain things I can be okay about. I don't know if you've faced that at all with you. I mean, you're you're only getting started here. um, So
0: There's this uh, Dunning-Kruger effect. Do you know about it? It's the more you learn about things, the more you start questioning yourself, the less you know about things, the more you think you're very good at it. Yes. (laughs) So most of the, I'm not going to bash people about this, although I like sometimes to bash on people, no offense, but sometimes the people who think themselves they're really good at something and they take pride on it are basically the type of people who just don't know about stuff. They just learned this one thing. They did it very good and then they take pride into it. There's no shame, but tell them to do something else. They might break in front of you.
1: (laughs) It's it's totally normal. It, I, I think there, that's it's hard to do because you want to have confidence because the confidence gives you the ability to go forward and try something that you didn't do before. But if here's you aren't confident in what you're doing, why would you try the next thing? Why how would you thing. take the next step?
0: Here's here's the fine part: is that we start to see we start to talk about how do other people see me. But here's the funny part: is that they see that how others are seeing me as well. So it's not about how people are seeing me, it's basically, I'm I'm afraid of how, I'm, how I'm gonna explain this, is that people are not afraid of other people, people are afraid of themselves. But the other people, they're not checking you out 24 seven, they're basically fearing about themselves as well. Yeah. So 90% of the time, they don't even know what you're doing. They're just focusing on themselves and they're asking the exact same question that you're asking. The moment you realize this, the less the effects of imposter syndrome that you know that people are not watching you 24-7 so they can point out something on you.
1: Yeah, there, There's a, uh, a similar advice that that I've seen other people give to speakers and I give to speakers as well when you're about to get up on stage is to realize the audience is with you. They would not have come and sat down in the room to watch you speak if they wanted you to fail because they're there to have a good time and, and hear what you want to say. So they're behind you 100%. So you being afraid of them makes no sense because it's like they're on your side. They're with you because if you do poorly, they do poorly. So, so you don't have to be afraid of the fact you're in front of an audience that they're going to like boo you or think that you're terrible. So like, I always love that piece of advice because it, it switches your focus on, it's not about you. It's about them. You're there for them. So just like, do you? (laughs) Because that's what they came for. Just
0: give them a good time.
1: Yeah. I I think it's hard. I think that's the hard part for me with public speaking was um, while I'm a natural person who likes to talk, I'm not necessarily the person who is the coolest guy at school or whatever, right? Like I didn't, didn't naturally have wit. I didn't like all those things. You kind of, you can build it up over the years to get better at that. But you always have that in the back of the mind, you know, that you were the nerdy kid at school or whatever, right? That, that wasn't cool. So when you go up on stage in front of a people, you're like, Oh, these people are, they're not going to really want to listen to me. So you have that little like nagging thing at the back of your head. Um, and when you realize like everybody with you is kind of like in a similar boat that, that they're all, they're all, they all have something, everybody's got something. We don't know what's, what's going on with them. Like nobody knew that I was having such hard times when I switched to a manager job, like I didn't let anybody know, like I didn't tell my family. Um, it was just, you, you deal with it yourself. And I think that's the the hardest part.
0: Most of the struggles are basically internal. They're not external at a certain level. So most of the time you might be facing with some tough stuff and you'll be just going to work and be like, I'm I'm good. There's nothing wrong with me.
1: How many times have we had the conversation that starts with, hey, how you doing? Good. How about you? Fine. It's like it's recorded, right? Nobody has (laughs) even said what actually happened or how they're feeling. I actually
0: look what I said. Actually, you have a point on this. So I break this sometimes with some people. So sometimes they ask me like, "Hey, how are you doing?" It's like you know what? I'm just a little bit stressed. Uh, There's a lot of stuff on my mind. Relatively good, but there are some stuff that are annoying me. They don't say, "Oh, okay." And ninety percent of them would come up and say, "How can I help you?" Which is very weird because. Every single person when they start asking about you and you tell them like hey I'm not feeling good they don't say oh okay hope you feel better it's that that's like the 10% of people 90% of them will come up and tell you like hey can I help you with something like there's something wrong with you and stuff like that but it just takes from you the initiative to do that
1: that that's you're right like that's the hardest part is to open up about these things that are going on. It's, I think that's why in the last couple of years we've seen more of a push of people to talk about mental health in our industry, is that for so many years, it was something you had to keep to yourself. Don't bring it to the office. Don't bring your problems. Like That's not what we're here for. We're not supposed to be talking about that. And now there's more of a an acceptance for people to share that things are not okay. Uh, there's like There's people who will now say, it's okay to not be okay. Um, and accepting that when you are having the troubles and you're feeling down, chances are the person putting on a good face in front of you has something going on with them too. They're in the same boat. And if you talk together, you might be able to help each other. Now it's a great, great sign of the type of people you are around. Muhammad. that 90% of the people around you say, how can I help? That is the type of group you want around you. Yeah, you want those people who would want to lift you up.
0: It's not just about people lifting you up. There are some people who are just generally nice. Yeah. Like like there's not bad people in the world. The, the people who just say, oh, okay, I hope you get better. Just stay away from them. It's like, you, you can be friends, but you just don't take seriously yeah. what's currently going on with them. But We're back to our t-
1: cards. Back to our cards. <laughs> cards.
0: But, but most of the people, that come up and tell you like, hey, you want me to help, even your managers at work. So if you're dealing with something mm-hmm. and you come up and you tell them like, hey, I'm not feeling good these days, I'm dealing with something, they're not gonna tell you, oh, okay, go go fix your stuff and then come back because they know this kind of thing is gonna impact them as well on the company-wise. Yeah. So they're much more better to deal it with you and trying to help you to find a solution so it doesn't impact work.
1: Absolutely. And, um... I went through some stuff last year um, where my my need for personal life balance was way over there. Like i I could not focus on work. Work was not going to be able to take the priority because of stuff that was going on with my family. And um, I I had an open conversation with my manager about that. It was like this is what's going on. I need to go. And not like work can't be my focus. I'm going to be taking a bunch of time off. I I need this right now. Uh, And I got full support. And he fought for me upwards to say like, this is what's happening. We're going to support this. We're going to make this happen. And it's not the first time that that's happened either. When something in my life was needing that extra thing. Finding a manager that is there and listens and understands what you said. That long term... This is going to be better for all of us if we don't try to force through this, that we support and we give something so that they come back and they're in the place they need to be. Because if we try to force through it now, you're either going to lose a resource on your team or they're not going to be doing their job very well and start impacting other people's ability to do jobs. Like I said, right? It's, it's, it's a lose-lose if you don't support your people. Um, and that's a hard part of people management is building the trust so that people will say that to you. Like, I don't know that everybody on my team tells me everything that's going on with them. I know that sometimes they will, but I can't be certain, right? I can never be sure that I build up enough trust that they're going to come to me when they need that help so that I can help them. And that that's 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 a tough part. So you have to like ask questions every now and then just to check. Try to have a real conversation.
0: It's a little bit difficult because uh, if you're a manager, they might think that the kind of advice you're going to give them, it's going to be judgmental. Whereas if someone on the same level as them, they're not going to judge them. They're more freely to say about those. So mm-hmm. most of the time in your team, the people who are on the same level would be sharing stuff with each other. But they're not going to share it to you, not because they are, they're afraid of, it's going to impact work or anything or how you're going to see them, but rather how you're going to judge them work wise.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough thing because yeah, not only am I there to coach and help and support, I'm also there to judge performance, decide who gets raises, decide who gets to uh, get a salary increase uh, or a a promotion or something like that. Right. Um, So there's two aspects of the job and, I feel like they conflict. And this is probably where having um, people who are smarter than I have recommended that as a people manager, you should try to stay out of that as much as possible. That they should have other people they talk to, professionals, leave the psychiatry to those people and wait till someone comes to you and deal with it as it goes. Because if you get too deep into it it can be hard to do the other aspect of the job Um, and also the other aspect of the job affects your ability to have those conversations with those people so it's a very tough line as both the employee and the manager to walk where you have this weird connection where someone controls your career but also is the best person to support you and give you the things you need when you're encountering like a mental health issue, for example.
0: Yeah, but because I, it's going to make an accurate um, assumptions of the person. So you might say, oh, this person underperformed a little bit because he's going through a depressive state. You might say, okay, maybe next time you'll get better. You start favoring people over people who don't have that much issues. So they might get an advantage over some other person who really worked hard. So it creates more of a biased kind of thing. So you start feeling sympathetic towards the person who, who is facing an issue, the point is to to help them, but not give them an advantage edge over you, Yeah, which is a very difficult kind of thing.
1: Yeah. It, I mean, we're all, in the end, human beings talking to other human beings, and we can't do that without emotion. We can't do that without having biases. Um, there are going to be people that you encounter in your life you're like this is an amazing person they are great at that and then you'll talk to somebody else and they're like what are you talking about they're terrible but it's like yeah but i saw them do x y and z right like they're just and you get these biases of how you see a person uh and it's hard to work around that it's hard to work around that i think for the the mental health thing that we we started with the um The thing that I learned about all of that was that as an individual, that there was a certain amount of responsibility for me to take about the balance. So like, there's great, there's other resources that can help me accomplish things, but I needed to find how do I balance what I'm working on versus what I need to do at personal life. Right? So how do I, there's the work life balance that everybody talks about, but then within work, how do I balance the things that drain me? Like going to six hours of meetings in a day to energize me, like making a new video or something like that, right? Like how do I balance enough of each so that I'm in a good mental health space at work? And the same, you have to do the same thing at home. You can't just be in a grind all the day at home. You have to find moments of joy and things like that. What, what's the common when everyone's talking about? Go and touch the grass. I'm not a grass-touching grass. guy, but, but that kind of idea, you have to find it, those moments. It means
0: just go outside.
1: Yeah, but... You have to find something necessarily that that gives you a recharging moment that is not the thing. You're not just doing laundry or the dishes or whatever, going to get the groceries, right? You got to find other things.
0: There's an interesting book, actually, if you want to read about it, called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Have you read it?
1: I haven't read that one, no. Oh, it's a really good book, by the way. I should try it.
0: It's about the focus on the things that you could do in your life rather than focusing on the things that's gonna happen. So let's say you got, every day you're gonna get emails. So you're mm-hmm. not gonna dread your life reading just emails because it's gonna happen and it's gonna be endless. And you have in your life an estimation of over 4,000 weeks to live. What can you do to provide the best thing you could do in those 4,000 weeks? And you start prioritizing the stuff that you really do want to do in your life. So instead of start focusing on the stuff that uh, is going to waste your time, and it's going to put you in a bad mental state at a certain level, it's like I'm not catching up and say, I'm losing time and I'm not able to do all of this. If you focus on the stuff that really does matter, you can make parts of your life very meaningful to the point you say, oh, I'm doing a lot of interesting things in my life. So you don't feel as if you're wasting your time.
1: Yeah, and uh, everybody has... A different thing i think that's that's what's interesting is that I, i'll talk to somebody who seems to be very similar to me and then i find out it's like yeah but they're really into like rock climbing and i'd be like can't do that that's way high off the ground i'm not going anywhere near that <laughs> but but everybody's got that thing that's like this is what i want to do with my life like for me having a family was a big thing for me like it, it and it was a while before we started one but um that was a that was a big thing that i wanted to do in my life i was the meaningful thing that I want to spend my time on, and that's what I'm going to go to later today. Is I want to spend my whole time with my family, with my kids, and try to see what we can get up to today. Right? Um, and I feel like if I feel like remote work was one of the big changes that allowed me to spend more time with family, um, that improved my quality of life because I was able to suddenly say, "Hey, I've got all these hours of work, but I'm also right here." I'm I'm seeing everybody every day. I get to watch them grow up. I'm not going on the bus down like I did at the start of my career. I'm li- I'm missing out on other things, but I got a chance to do that. And now I get this chance to do something something really meaningful to me and spend that time. And maybe I'll go back to being an office jockey again one day, riding right the ride right in the cubicle. But uh for right now, I think we you're right. We have to find those things that are meaningful. I love that the 4000 weeks. I had to check that out
0: yeah it's a it's a really good book. Uh, by the way uh, it's a really good book I've read it at a time where I was actually facing with burnout Uh, I have a habit of reading a lot so I read 52 books a year I've been doing it for more than three years I have a habit of reading so I even can read when I'm burned out which is a very interesting thing so I read this book I was like in a very bad state so I read this book in a cafe on a Sunday I was like reading this book. I was like sipping on American uh, Americano coffee. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna read this book. Uh, it's been recommended. And I was just reading it, it was like, holy shit, my life changed. <laughs> just like one one day on a weekend. And then I went back home. I've start. I I've put on a notebook. I start writing stuff that I wanna do. I, I've recalibrated my entire life and I moved forward on it,
1: which is very weird. And you've got so many weeks ahead of you to do so many different things. It's gonna be amazing to find out what, what happens. What, what is gonna be 100 weeks from now? What's gonna be 200 weeks from now? Right. No,
0: it's like you, you start to expect, let's say, what I'm gonna do now, but it's more about enjoying the process much more than the end goal. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm gonna focus on doing, let's say, the end goal, you reach to it and then you say, okay, what I'm gonna do next? And you get frustrated to the point that you say, okay, I've reached to my end goal, I have no purpose it's not about the end goal, it's rather the process. So I enjoy doing things. So I enjoy writing code. I enjoy doing the videos. I enjoy writing the blog posts. It's not like I'm going to write 100 blog posts in a, let's say, a year. OK, maybe let's say I writ- I've written 100 blog posts in the, th- in the first four months of the, of the year. Mm-hmm. OK, then what? Does this mean I have to stop writing blog posts till the next year? No, you just enjoy the process. You keep writing blog posts because you love writing blog posts. It's not about the number. It's about, I want to do this.
1: Yeah. Then, and, when you and,
0: put, uh, and when you put numbers that are quite difficult to reach, you get frustrated to the point that you sometimes even burn out because you say, okay, I have this benchmark that I can do, but I'm not doing, so I'm a failure, but you're not.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, It's. I, I was going to say that the when life hits you and you can't do everything that you wanted to do, that's always the point where you start feeling, I'm I'm not doing enough. Like it's, I'm not, I'm not doing the right thing. And yeah, it's you're right. It's less about hitting a certain goal, and as opposed to making sure you're on the journey to the goal, and not getting off your journey and stopping it, because if you stop and you just stay with all those things that, oh, how, how do you put it, the, the things that are gonna happen anyway, right? Like the- The recurring stuff. Yeah, the recurring stuff. If, if that's all that's happening, and that's all that's on you, it just weighs you down.
0: Yeah, and it's like, you're. And I'm gonna be very realistic, you're gonna receive emails every single day, you're gonna go to work five times a week, get up, there's some stuff that's gonna happen every single day. If you're gonna fret on those, eventually you're gonna fret your entire life over things that mm-hmm. it's basically that every single human being does face with. So you get emails, I get emails in a day. Okay, this email can wait later on, but I can do something very fun that I want to do.
1: Absolutely. There's no shame
0: into that. But yeah, people I, realizing I, this is the problem.
1: I, I think it's there's a lot of pressure on us to achieve certain things. Like when we grow up, we're told this is, the way things are you're going to do x y and z by the time you're x years old right like i didn't hit any of those things you know i was always trying to do something else and uh so you feel like you're always behind a little bit on everything uh, and there always seems to be something else that comes up that's like in the way of you doing that next thing that you really wanted to do um so i i definitely have helped felt that where it's like i feel like i'm behind it's like, how do I catch up? How do I catch up? Uh, and You're not going to catch up. It's hard to change your focus to be like, no, I, I'm here now. Whatever's happening is happening. I can't deal with that. But what is it that's happening now? That's It's hard to change your focus to that.
0: It's we're goal-driven just, somehow. <laughs> it's like you focus on the things you do have control rather than focusing on the stuff you don't have control over.
1: Yeah. And that's another hard thing. Like, There's so many things that we're exposed to that we get angry about or upset about but we have no control over to affect the outcome but we get emotionally invested in them um and that really hurts your mental health and you have to like you have to recognize that that's happening to you like it happens to be all the time like doom scrolling on twitter is like one of the worst things that just tells you about all the horrible things happening and you have no control over the outcome Absolutely not. And you just, it feels like there's like, oh, there's no point to it. Um, And that it's hard to bring your mind out of that and go, I can't affect that. That's, but it's always eating at you. Like this stuff is happening. Um, And everybody's got that going on. And some people are going to be better at turning it off and compartmentalizing than others. Uh, I know people who are able to go through the worst possible things and they're able to, be able to say to themselves, okay, that is a thing that's happening, but I can't focus on it. This is the goal right now. I have to be here right now. This is what's what matters. And they're able to push it aside for a while. And it might come back later, but... You know, it's going to hit you
0: It's gonna hit you like a wrecking train later on. Because yeah. no matter how you're going to do, it's still going to hit you a little bit. Yeah. So even if you say, I want to do this, I focus on this, and there's some other stuff in life, it's going to hit you. You might... I'm going to say this, you might move like a couple of weeks, but then you just get frustrated over the thing that's been pending for a while. That You, you should have done it, but you didn't. So it also weighs on you on a certain level.
1: Yeah, I, I'm i not sure if we'll ever solve that for everybody everywhere. But I think it's what's important is the conversation that you're having with people, where you're getting people to talk about this and getting people aware that this is something people have to think about. And the more we expose people to, The fact that this is okay to talk about, that this is something to acknowledge, um, I think that's going to be a big help. That's going to do an impact because everybody can be aware that it's okay to talk to other people about this and they don't have to go through it alone. Everybody's doing it.